You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Writer and director Jeff Lipsky is a 28-year veteran in the independent film world. Among the more well-known of the 235 films he has shepherded into the marketplace are My Life as a Dog, Stranger Than Paradise, and the film that introduced Gary Oldman to the world, Sid and Nancy. Co-founder of both October Films and Lot 47 Films, Lipsky's latest film is Flannel Pajamas, a love story, a stunning courtship, and later, a reversal of fortunes. Jeff Lipsky, welcome to Film School. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm uh, a little bleary-eyed, but deliriously happy. We opened uh, Flannel Pajamas in oh, New York yes. this past weekend, and we're, uh, we were one of the highest-grossing films uh, in the city. Yes, uh, well, congratulations. So we are, uh, well, I think it's one step in the right direction. Absolutely. You should be very proud. It's a fine film. Thank I you just, very much. I just finished watching it last night, and i, I got to ask this all the time. Is there any uh, autobiographical information in there? Yeah, I'd say about 50% of the film oh, uh, very is very heavily rooted in autobiographical uh, detail, uh, and the other half is complete fabrication, but always invention that uh, helps inform the core relationship that uh, forms the story of the film. Is there one relationship? I'm going back on the autobiographical stuff right now. Is there one relationship you're relating to here? Is this yeah, just a- it is. Uh, I was married uh, in 89, and I was divorced in 92, and the impetus to write the screenplay really occurred about 10 years after the divorce when I was packing to move from Los Angeles to New York and found the wedding album of photographs, which I hadn't seen in many years. And I began reflecting for the first time in quite some time on the marriage and the, the initial courtship and about how, the, you know, wondrous it was and perfect it was, a paradigm of, of two human beings. And I began jotting down notes about days and events and, and flourishes that I recalled. And I, start, I began to question what might have gone wrong. And then as I began to detail and chronicle ever more honestly, I began seeing a little slip-ups and little, little uh, cracks uh, in the sidewalk of our relationship. And by the time I finished writing this journal, it, it looked like a, an outline for a film. And I decided to, uh, that it really would resonate and uh, reverberate with people who had been through any of this, even the yeah. ones who survive and go on to have lengthy, wonderful marriages. That is the uh, remarkable thing about collapses of relationships. Is it's, it's the small little bits yeah. that add up and add up until the, uh, the weight becomes too much for it to withstand. Yeah, and I think that's what's unique about the film. It's not about infidelity. It's uh-huh. not about spousal abuse. It's about, you know, the film's two people who fall desperately in love with each other, but at two completely different times. Uh, and it's really, uh, for me, a story that when empathy is not, uh, in, uh, is not present in a relationship, and it's only love, then you're going to have a, a hard uh, road to hoe. <laughs> and, and, I, and I appreciate it in the film and watching the, the, the characters uh, in it that it's a very subtle film. I mean, it really is. Uh, the, the, it's incremental. The things that happen in the relationship that the cracks that start to develop, develop, and if you're not watching closely, even if you're not watching the film closely, you can miss a lot of these these things that are beginning to happen that are, are forming the relationship. 
Yeah, I mean, just as in real life, you yeah. say things that you think are just uh, pithy and funny and glib, and you don't realize <laughs> the profound impact it can have on somebody yeah. else. I, I hate the, the idea that somebody in an audience might have to see a movie twice to fully appreciate what's going on. Yeah. Uh, it should never be necessary to see a good movie twice if it's a, if it's a good movie. But I think that there's uh, there's a, so much of a wealth of information, there's so much of a richness in, um, in the story that uh, it just becomes better the second time. You uh, talked about at one point uh, films that had essentially changed your life, your and your and that began a relationship. Was this you, in an interview, Mike? That you yeah, were, it, and, and and how um, John Cassavetes had a tremendous impact on your life. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're going to age me, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that was just yeah, yesterday. Uh, you said <laughs> yeah, that. Okay. My first filmmaking idol, my first filmmaking hero, and it was when I saw his film Husbands at the age of 17. It was the first time I uh, watched a movie as a young adult, and it completely changed the way I thought about life, about movies, about mortality, uh, about uh, adult irresponsibility, uh, about dedication to uh, a soulmate, uh, a partner in life. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, when he made his next film to meet him as a college journalist, uh, and he befriended me. The film after that was A Woman Under the Influence in 1974, and I was managing movie theaters at the time, something I loved, but uh, even then I was determined to be a filmmaker. And when John found himself without a distributor, Hollywood really hated him at the time, and he hated Hollywood. Uh, he decided to give it a role himself, and I came on board really because I thought it would help accelerate the process of becoming a filmmaker. I didn't realize it was going to take another 21 years years. Um, but it, it did afford me the opportunity, as did many relationships I had with filmmakers who, whose films I'd represented later, people like Mike Lee, people like Jim Jarmusch, people like uh, Alex Cox, people like Rhino Werner Fassbender. That was my film school. Being able to visit John's sets and, and some of the others as well, that's how I learned how to write dialogue. That's how I learned how to value characters. And that's how I learned something about uh, creating full-blooded, three-dimensional, complex, realistic women, which I think is, uh, for most male filmmakers, the most daunting and the most challenging <laughs> thing to achieve in filmmaking. Yeah. Well, how do you do that? Well, I mean, first you listen. of all, it, it, it's, it's a very personal thing. I yeah. prefer yeah. women to men. Yeah. Uh, I, I find men more uh, uh, boring uh, most of the time. And so, you know, if you have a respect for women to begin with, it just becomes, uh, you, you, you do, you challenge yourself each and every time out. And when I develop characters at the beginning of writing any script, the first thing I do is assign professions to them. So I make sure that they're unique professions or interesting professions or professions I want to find out more about. You know, once you attach something uh, interesting to a human being, in this case a woman, uh, if you have a knack for dialogue, you end up with somebody uh, that's going to have some heft to it. Boy, you just named, first of all, in, in the film, In Flannel Pajamas, by the way, we're speaking with Jeff Lipsky, uh, director of film that is just coming out this Friday at the uh, university theaters across the street from, from UCI. Yeah, jams. please come see it this weekend, because if you don't come see it this yep. weekend, there won't be a second weekend. <laughs> okay, well, we, ex we explain that to our listeners. We too, let right? them know. That, that's, that's, that's important to know, that films do live or die in the first weekend these days. Believe me, the James Bond film will still be playing in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you've assigned uh, Stuart, uh, the uh, the character in Flannel Jamas, with an interesting profession. Um, 
how did is that somebody you knew or is it the the no, what his, I, I mean i suppose that the character of stewart who is some kind of uh broadway theater marketing guru right. and group sales uh wizard uh it was just something i made up uh i wanted to uh create for him a profession in which he would be the the center of attention in in which his professional job was in fact to lie his butt off and uh, mm-hmm. and it would be in keeping with the way he dealt with the people in his life, even those people he feels great fondness for. Mm-hmm. So it served his purposes as as a, you know as a, as a personal individual and a professional individual. You know, I, I've got just got to say off the top of my head, I I love the scene of of the mother who simply forgets things. Yeah. That really rang true to me. It seemed like a, a, a really honest moment of the film where, where uh, nothing went on, and, and yet everything went on in describing that character. It was a beautiful job there. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that was, um, that's something that's create. Fi- uh, I'm sorry, uh, complete fiction. Uh, my ex-mother-in-law were, uh, neither suffered from Alzheimer's nor did her husband abuse his children, uh, nor was she anti-Semitic, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> but I just felt that I wanted to create somebody who, who was a, kind of a paradox, somebody who just held on to beliefs that were horrific, that informed her life, but at the same time, somebody who was suffering from a terrible, debilitating disease. Uh, and so therein became a tragic figure, despite her, uh, her, the, the, the thought of her that was a monster. Uh, and I think that you get a sense of both of those sides, and hopefully they, they uh, kind of care at your, your own feelings of, of sympathy for her and, and hatred for her at the same time. Uh, we're speaking with Jeff. Lipsky, the director and writer of the film Flannel Pajamas. Can you just go a little bit in just the mechanics of writing? How, how you go about uh, putting down a script? Where, I, I know you started as kind of a uh, semi-autobiographical sketch here, but, but then, then where do you go? Are you, are you picking up dialogue as you're going along yeah, through the day? I, I mean, actually, that's exactly what I do. I once asked John Cassavetes how he wrote yeah. such vivid, believable dialogue, and he said, well, it's very easy to do. All you do is re- you remember that when somebody says something, when somebody addresses another person, that whatever they're saying is not what they're thinking. And so right away you're setting up uh, a, a mini-drama within whatever scene that you're writing. And it becomes twice as interesting because the audience is sometimes in on it and sometimes they're not, and sometimes the, the other character is in on it and sometimes they're not. And, you know, you, you just create an, uh, you know, an exponentially interesting uh, uh, mini-drama, a mini-play uh, mini within each scene. And what happens with me sometimes is I, I come up with professions, I come up with characters, and then I find myself walking down the street, and I think of a line of dialogue, and I'm not even sure which of my characters is going to say it. I just think that it possesses some universal truth. So I scribble it down on a copy of the Village Voice that I pick up at the street corner where I happen to be walking. And just as at the point that I'm ready to commit the entire script to a, uh, you know, a script writing program on my word processor, I end up with a mountain of fragments of pieces of scenes of dialogue and then I assign the dialogue to a character and, and to a scene, and then it just flows very easily. Uh, it's not painstaking, but it's just eccentric, I suppose. In Women Under the Influence, that was a film that had a real Im- impact on me. I remember when it came out, Jenna Rollins, and it was a, it, 
it, it, that was all that was all dialogue. That film yeah, what really the screenplay, uh, the original script of a woman under the influence was approximately two hundred and twenty five pages. Yeah. Whereas most Hollywood scripts run between one hundred and one hundred and twenty pages. Uh, it was real uh, in in a sense it was written as a play. There were three very distinct acts. And you know, it, it's a mis, uh, misconception that John Cassavetes was the king of the improv improvisational film uh makers. He wasn't. Only one of his films was improvised, his first film, Shadows. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first independent film, Shadows. The rest of them were very heavily scripted works. I don't think John ever used the word cut at the end of a take. <laughs> once, they, once the actors, once his actors uh, recited the, the words that were on, printed on the page, he would just let them go. Or not. Or they would just stop talking. Yeah. Uh, he burned a lot of film that way. Yeah. He probably shot, on a, you know, for these intimate little character studies of his, a million and a half feet of film. Yeah. And he often uh, shot with two cameras. He, generally, he, he shot with two cameras. So it was twice as much film being exposed. But he, he just wanted to give his actors every chance that they might uh, want to develop the characters without the assistance of, uh, of a script. Uh, but at the same time, he was responsible enough. Uh, he was an uncannily prolific writer. Uh, in his office, at any given point in time, was a bookshelf that contained approximately 200 scripts that he had written that that were never produced. He would come into work every morning and dictate within an hour 10 pages of a new script that he had come up with. Mm. Uh, And by the time his secretary typed out the pages, he had committed them to memory. He was uh, an extraordinary genius. Is there any uh, thought to turning some of these uh, scripts into film? I mean, is anybody... You know what? That's a question for Jenna Rollins. I mean, she owns uh, all of the intellectual property that John had written over the years. I don't think that it's something that interests her terribly. Uh, his son, Nick, uh, did direct one of them, uh, which was uh, She's the Lovely. Uh, or D. Lovely, I think was, yeah, uh, I yeah. can't remember the, the release title of the film, uh, but it was the one that starred uh, Sean Penn. Uh, beyond that, I just don't think that they're ever going to see the light of day. I'll tell you what, the, one of the great tragedies of that treasure trove of material of John's is that, as I said earlier, my, the film that changed my life was his movie Husbands. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I didn't say that earlier, but that is the one. And um, much, much later when I was working for him and things in the distribution company was, were kind of waning, I was in his office one day with an assistant editor, and we put on real one of Husbands. It was a 35-millimeter print. He had never seen it, the editor. He was a young guy. And I wanted to show, show him some of the stylized features of the movie, and we were watching the movie. And John poked his head in and uh, went into his office. And I walked into John's office and I said, listen, we were just watching the beginning of Husbands, and you know how I feel about the movie, but it occurred to me to ask why, or whether you, when you were writing the film or directing it, did you ever want to explain why the wives didn't come to the funeral, a funeral that, that begins the movie? And he said, well, it's in the book. I said, what book? <laughs> and, and he said, the book. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And this Cheshire smile suddenly appeared in his face. He leaned back to this bookshelf, pulled out a Pendaflex folder, and within that folder was a 500-page typed manuscript oh of a novel called Husbands. 
And it was something that happened when he came back from first New York and then London to California to do the editing. He had four teams of editors, and after a week, the lead editor told John, John, we have no idea what this movie's about. And John said, you know, the heck with you guys. Go home. Take a week off. Go on vacation. And for a week, he held himself up with his secretary and dictated a 500-page book, about 10 or 20% of which was what happens in the movie, and the other 80% was these characters' lives apart from the film. And he gave each of the editors a copy of the book when they returned and said, read this, that's what the movie's about. And then he took this 500-page book and stuck it in a folder on his bookshelf, and he gave me a copy of it. I read the entire book that night, and it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. And it's something that nobody will ever see. Well, that's a shame. Well, that's a... What a... a what this is another story. Dina Rowland. Uh, yeah. if, uh, if, I had, if I had the wherewithal and the legal rights to do yeah. something with it, I would. But yeah. I, I yeah. have a feeling it's just, you know, that's not what John was about. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and it's too bad because there's a wealth of unpublished material that is, as I said earlier, you know, uh, uh, going to film school right, then, right there. Well, I, I, I can't let you get away without mentioning two other films that I had just, uh, I thought were, um, um, they changed, in, I wouldn't say changed my life, but m- maybe they did in some ways. My Dinner with Andre and Stranger, the, uh, Stranger Than uh, Paradise. 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 Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I couldn't yeah, say it. Uh, my, Those okay, two, I thought were... about each are, uh, Stranger Than Paradise uh, w- was when I worked for Samuel Goldwyn in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I, we saw it at uh, a midnight show or a very late night show uh, during the, I guess it was the, the iteration of the Los Angeles Independent Film Festival at the time. And my head of acquisitions, I was running distribution. We saw it. We called our boss and said, we have to buy this movie. Yeah. Uh, and it was an original. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that uh, Jim, uh, despite some really wonderful work after that, has never quite equaled the yeah. distinction of that film. It was, it was a singular achievement, and there was nothing like it before that in motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's what independent filmmaking is supposed to be. Yeah. The other film, My Dinner with Andre, uh, I can't stand the movie. <laughs> really? And uh, when my boss told me he had made a deal to distribute the movie, I wouldn't speak to him for a week. <laughs> and um, but, but I became very close and very friendly with both Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory, who were the writers <laughs> and stars of that film. Oh, yeah. And, of course, it became a massive cult phenomenon. Yeah. Um, uh, it was uh, hugely successful in both New York and Los Angeles. It played in New York at the same theater for 51 weeks and six days. Uh, it was the first film, I believe, that Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, when they were film critics on their original PBS broadcast yeah. show, yeah. completely were responsible for making successful. Okay. Uh, when they were really speaking to a constituency that cared about movies like this. Yeah. It was a joyous, wondrous experience releasing the film. And to this day, I can't figure out why people are so uh, <laughs> does, you know, does, heels enamored with the movie. Does Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory, do they know that uh, you can't stand it? I don't know. It's, it was published in some kind of film industry uh, <laughs> of experiences. So it's not that this is a revelation, but yeah. maybe to them it is. Um, and uh, if it is, uh, guys, you know, please forgive me. <laughs> well, I'm just curious. I had to ask one more question. Uh, what don't you like about it? Is it is it too pretentious for you? Is that, is well, it... I, I hate using the word pretentious. I think using the yeah. word pretentious is pretentious. Well, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I think that uh, Andre's musings uh, are inex. I don't think there's a human being on the face of the planet that can identify with what he's saying. And in fact, about 45 minutes to an hour into the movie of mostly Andre describing his uh, metaphysical experiences and his Uh encounters with God knows what, uh, shamans or whatever, 
Wally finally speaks up and he says in his inimitable way, <laughs> I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I couldn't agree more. And it's been that that line gets the biggest laugh, <laughs> even from audiences that just, you know, are, are cultists about it. Uh, it's, well, yeah. let's get back to your film. The film is Flannel Pajamas. It yeah, op- and I just want to say one quick word. My cast is extraordinary. Yes. Uh, Julianne Nicholson yes. and Justin Kirk's, uh, Kirk deliver. Uh, I'm sorry, the two best performances you'll see this year. Well, I, uh, yeah, he was amazing in Angels uh, in America, and he's terrific in this film. Julianne Nicholson also, terrific film. Flannel Pajamas, Jeff Lipsky, thank you for being on Film School. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at kuci.org slash filmschool.